Um, my name is Reggie, and uh, this morning I have the great privilege and, um, and uh, pleasure of uh, finishing out our series on 1 John. Over the course of this summer, we've been moving through 1 John, and, um, and so like I said, this morning we'll finish 1 John. Uh, it's one of my most favorite passages in the world that we're going to work through this morning. Uh, at the end of 1 John, John gives us a warning that is so pertinent to the church and to our lives today, while at the same time giving us such assurance in what Christ has done and how Christ holds his people. So I'm incredibly excited and honored and privileged to be able to talk about this passage this morning. But before we get started, let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for our opportunity to be together in this place this morning. Thank you for the reminder that you are good God, that that you have been good, that you are good, that you will be good. God, thank you for Jesus and his work on our behalf, that we can be joined together in a new way this morning because of Christ. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we look at your word, as we talk about your word, as we look at the implications of what you have for us here. God, I pray that you would be honored and glorified and Christ would be lifted high. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. And so God, let us hear your words. Pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds in this place. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 1 John 5, verses 13 through 21. If you want to follow along, um, they'll be on the screen. And uh, feel free to read in your Bibles as well. But... This is God's word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have heard of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is no sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. And his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Have you ever wanted to know something so deeply that you just completely threw yourself into a quest for knowledge? Like you just wanted to know something so fully And be so sure that you knew this thing that you were trying to figure out. Well, let me ask you another question, a different question. Have you ever thought you knew something only to find out later that you didn't know what you actually thought you knew? Several years ago, uh, Amy and I, my wife and I and our two girls had the opportunity to spend some time at Fripp Island, which is an island down on the coast of South Carolina. If you've never been there um, it's, a, it's just a really secluded place. And so Natalie and Laurel, my daughters, were really young at the time. And, um, and one thing about Fripp Island is that everywhere you go on Fripp Island, there's wildlife. But there are deer 
all over Fripp Island. I mean, in the front yard, in the backyard, on the road, everywhere you go, there's deer. And so we were down there and um, moving around the island, whether we were walking or riding around or whatever, we would just see deer everywhere we went. And all the deer are tagged. So they have these tags in their ears. And uh, I don't know who's tracking them, but somebody's tracking them. Don't really know why. But our girls were young at the time, like I said. And so when we would walk past the deer, I would be like, oh, look, that deer is named Cinnamon. It's right there on its name tag. That deer is named Cinnamon. It's really a number, right? Or, hey, look, that deer is named Paprika. Or that deer is named Pepper. It's right there on their name tag. And this all came from a great children's show called Blue's Clues. I think that was part of Blue's Clues, right? But, um, but anyway, so the girls were little and they believed me. So every time we went past a deer, I would have to make up a new name based off of some seasoning. Uh, right? And so over the course of the week, I ran out of names. But every time we would go by a deer, I'd be like, oh, no, no, that's Paprika again. Because I can't think of another name right now. <laughs> and, uh, and so sometime in the last year... Amy and I and the girls were sitting down to dinner, and one of our kids started talking about all the deer on Fripp Island and how their name tags on their ears had their name on them. And I realized, okay, I've lied to my kids for years and years now. Is this the time that I make it right or not? And uh, so I had to fess up and tell them the truth that, that what they thought they knew to be true was actually not true at all. And the reason I fessed up was I just had these visions of them being at their friend's house and talking about how all the deer at Fripp Island were named paprika and cinnamon and stuff like this. And so I just fessed up and told them the truth, that what they knew, what they thought they knew to be true was actually not true at all. The situation in the church that John was writing to was not exactly the same as this, but it was a situation where certain people were calling into question what the believers In this church in Ephesus, where John was, they were calling into question what these believers thought they knew, right? The church in Ephesus had started years and years and years before this letter of 1 John was written. If you go back through the book of Acts, you see that Paul actually went through Ephesus on his missionary journeys and planted some churches there. Uh, We know that some of Paul's associates, Timothy, maybe even spent time in Ephesus, right? And In Acts chapter 19, it tells the story of Paul's, one of Paul's trips there and how the whole city uh, erupts into a riot that lasts for hours and hours and hours because Paul is preaching against the idols of Ephesus, right? And then sometime 10 or 15 years later after Paul is there, I don't know exactly, um, John shows up in Ephesus and John becomes associated with the church of Ephesus and he stays there until his death. And he really loves this church that he's writing to in 1 John. And John has, from the beginning of his time in Ephesus, been giving this church everything he knew to be true about Jesus. And what he really wanted them to understand, and he says this in the beginning of the book in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. He talks about this, that, that his goal for them is to understand the fellowship they have with Jesus. He wants them to fully grasp what it means to have fellowship with Christ. Right? And... and And the reason that John wrote this letter, though, is because there were people. And if you remember back in chapter 2 of 1 John, John actually calls them antichrists because they were antichrist. But he talks about these people, these false teachers who had come into this church, had become part of this church and said, everything John has told you is not really true. There's more to the story. 
Right. And essentially these false teachers, these antichrists, like I said, that John called them were misrepresenting Jesus, telling the people of this church that they needed something else in addition to Jesus. They were calling into question everything that John had been teaching them from his time that he was there. And they're saying instead of what John has said about Jesus, instead of what John has said about how Jesus offers you eternal life, you need to find this extra secret knowledge. You need to unleash this special light that lives inside of you. It was an early form of what came to be known as Gnosticism that these false teachers were, were giving these people. So when these false teachers were talking about things like eternal life, they probably meant getting to a point where you release your mind and spirit from this physical world to go live in a spirit world, right? And, and just some weird things like that, that the physical world was bad and, and, and it led to some false teachings about Jesus and about whether Jesus was really human or divine and just weird stuff, right? And so these teachings had, had split this church, John talks about that. This this teaching has split this church and former friends were now enemies. And there's probably a crisis in the church. The crisis that the church was facing had no doubt led to a crisis of faith for many. That happens. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church split or major conflict in a church. But sometimes it extends beyond just that conflict to actually create a crisis of faith for many people. And so John writes this letter, and in chapter 5, verse 13, like we, just said, like we just read, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God and the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know. John recognized that the confidence and the resolve of these believers needed to be strengthened. And so he's attempting to care for these people who had been so hurt and so damaged by these false teachers, by the conflict in the church, by the split that had probably taken place, by the continued crisis in the hearts and minds of the people of this church. Right? The crisis that had no doubt, the conflict that had no doubt been internalized by members of the church, such that they were doubting their faith, doubting that they could really know that they were children of God. Right? And so in verse 13 and following, John is encouraging these believers to be strong and confident and to know, to know that they have a unique fellowship with Jesus because of what Christ had done. Right? He's attempting to shore up the foundations of this church that had been shaken. He wants them to not just intellectually know about Jesus, but he actually wants them to experience fellowship with Jesus and the assurance that that brings. I can't help but think about Psalm 34, 8, when I think about the fact that John wants them to truly experience this assurance. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? There's a difference between knowing intellectually that key lime pie is the most delicious and refreshing food in the world and actually tasting key lime pie. There's a difference between being told that honey is sweet and then tasting to see that it is. One's an intellectual knowledge, one is experiential. And John wants these believers to experience the assurance that Jesus has given them. 
He wants these believers to know that in Christ you can truly experience fellowship and assurance. He wants them to have the assurance that God is keeping them, that God is protecting them, that God is listening to them, that God is for them, that God has already done the work to give them fellowship with himself through Jesus. Right? If you just go back and look at how many times John uses the word know in this passage. In verse 13, he says that you may know that you have eternal life. In verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the request that we're asking. We, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. We know that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is true and that Jesus is eternal life, right? The idea of knowing is what ties this passage together. And John wants that knowing to defeat any doubt this congregation may be experiencing. And he wants knowing, truly knowing that assurance to bolster this congregation, right? If we were to attempt to categorize what John is saying here, We could say that John is attempting to assure them of just a few things. He wants to assure them of their fellowship with Jesus. That's that's what John means, like in verse 13, when he says that they may be sure of their eternal life. It's It's not just getting out of this physical world. It's not just separating from your body. It's not even going to heaven. What John wants to assure them of is that they are living eternally in fellowship with Jesus. He wants them to be assured of that eternal fellowship. He goes on in verses 14 and 15 to talk about prayer, saying, asking, according, asking anything according to, to, to God's will, you already have it. He, he goes on from there in verses 16 and 17 and verses 18 and 20 to talk about the protection that's found in Christ. In verses 16 and 17, he talks about how believers are to protect one another, to keep one another from sin, to point out, to bring one another back to, to Jesus when sin is happening, to, to, to instruct one another, encourage one another with the gospel. And in verses 18 through 20, he talks about how Christ himself is keeping us, how the whole world is in the power of something other than Christ, but that Christ is keeping his people. That Christ is keeping his people. Right? And so we have to see that in these last few verses, John wants these believers to be confident in their knowledge of God. He wants them to be confident in their prayer life. He wants them to be confident in their care for one another. And he wants them to be confident in the fact that Jesus himself is caring for them. He spends so much time bolstering their confidence that we have to pick up that's what he's doing. But then he does something incredibly Dramatic and striking. He shifts. And the very last thing he says in the book of First John, a, a book where he spends the entire time through First John saying that this is how you know that you are children of God. This is how you know. This is how you can have assurance that you belong to Jesus. He spends the entire book talking about that assurance and that love. And in, in the very last verse, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It is a dramatic shift. It is a plot twist that you did not see coming. It's a better plot twist than the sixth sense, but it's a plot twist that you didn't see coming. 
We probably should have seen it coming. The clues were there all along. But here's the reason why I think John does this at the end. He spends an entire book telling us this is how you can be assured that you belong to Christ. This is how you can be assured that you have a new identity in Christ. This is how you can be assured of what Christ has done for you and that you belong to Christ. And then he says, keep yourselves from idols. And here's the reason why he does this. I think John wants us to understand that idols will absolutely destroy a believer's assurance that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And we might hear the word idolatry and think that John's warning here holds nothing for us. Because we don't live in a culture and society where people are literally bowing down to and worshiping idols like they might have been in Ephesus where there was a temple to Artemis, like we see in Acts 19, where these, all these idol makers who are literally making these idols, we don't live in that sort of culture and society. That was a thing in Ephesus. It's not a thing here. But it would be a mistake to think that what John says here isn't for us as well. Right? I, I don't have time to work this out entirely, But this warning to keep ourselves from idols is just as relevant today for us as it ever has been. I would actually argue that Western society, that our culture is idolatrous to the core. That the very foundations of our Western society are idolatrous. Our society is built around reason being the primary source of authority And legitimacy in life. And this reliance on reason and rationality in the West has led to the valuing of ideals like individual liberty and progress and tolerance and freedom. Right? That that sounds like where we live, right? Those are the things that we value. We are all about the individual in our society and culture. Individual freedom is king. The result of a society that largely builds itself upon individual freedom and autonomy is society that worships itself, that worships its individuals, that allows its members to worship its own desires. That's the national, that is the natural outworking of our culture. That is where it leads and that is where we are. And here's the thing about that, though. In the Old Testament, God's people often found themselves in trouble regarding the worship of idols, the worship of other gods. The the word uh, idolatry in the Old Testament usually signified a, a drift away from God towards some other false god, towards some other deity. In the New Testament, though, the New Testament doesn't use the word idolatry a lot, but it uses another word, I think. To sort of convey the same thing. If you remember. 1 John 2.16 says this. For all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh. And the desires of the eyes. And the pride of life. Is not from the father. But is from the world. Right. The the word for the desire. That's used in 1 John 2.16. Is often translated as lust. It's the Greek word. Epithumia. 
It's a very important word throughout the New Testament. You see it over and over, Romans and other places. It's important in this book. And the definition of the word is a desire that has taken on too much weight. It's a craving that has taken on such weight in your life that this craving, this desire begins to control you. And that's what we need to think about when we hear John say, To these believers and to us, little children, guard yourselves from idols. We need to be thinking about anything that has such a controlling position in our hearts and in our minds that we can spend our passion and energy and emotions and resources on it without giving it a second thought. Right in the West, it's usually money or power, or sex, or significance that we crave and that we pursue in some form or another. But an idol is really anything more important to you, to me, than God. Anything that absorbs our heart and our imagination more than God. Anything that we seek to give us what only God can give us. Those are our idols. It's anything that we can look at and say, if I have that, if I, if I get that, if I do that, well, then I'll have meaning and value and significance and my life will be worthwhile. It's anything that I say, if that is taken away from me, then life is no longer worth living. But the truth is this, that idols will never give you the meaning and significance that we all crave in some form or fashion. Idols will rob us of our joy. Idols will steal the assurance that can only be found in Jesus. Idols will never forgive you when you fail. Idols will trap you in an unending loop of trying to get that thing you crave only to leave you unsatisfied and wanting more of that same thing. Such that you'll try again over and over again. And over. Over the past few weeks, I've been reading a lot of um, Flannery O'Connor. And uh, Flannery O'Connor wrote a short story called Parker's Back. Short story is about a guy named O.E. Parker. And in this story, Parker really loves tattoos. Now, this story isn't about tattoos, but Parker really loves tattoos. Parker is in his late 20s, and in the story, he's grown up idolizing and loving tattoos. Ever since he was a young teenager, all he's wanted is to have more and more tattoos. And so Parker goes into the Navy. He travels the world. He gets tattoos everywhere he goes. Every time there's a significant life event that happens, he gets a tattoo to tell the story of his life. But he's never gotten a tattoo on his back. Because he couldn't see a tattoo on his back. He loves his tattoos so much that he only gets tattoos where he can see them. And eventually Parker settles down in this rural area. He uh, marries the daughter of um, of, of a country preacher. Starts working on a farm. Um, Even though they're married and they get together, his wife hates his tattoos. Uh, In the story, she calls them the vanity of vanities. It kind of points a little bit to scripture there, kind of points a little bit to John Bunyan's story, Pilgrim's Progress. But eventually Parker 
gets in this farming accident where he wrecks a tractor. Tractor catches on fire and he's so jarred by the farming accident, so overwhelmed by what happens that he gets in his car and he drives 50 miles away from wherever he is to the closest town where he can get a tattoo. And he spends two days getting this giant tattoo of Christ on his back. And the whole time he's getting this tattoo of Jesus on his back, in the story, it's talking about how this will finally be the tattoo that his wife accepts. This will finally be the tattoo that his wife loves. And that's what he's thinking about the whole time that this tattoo, the whole time that he's getting this tattoo, because it's a tattoo of Jesus. And so he goes home and he reveals the tattoo to his wife. And like what often happens in a Flannery O'Connor story, something crazy happens. His wife begins to beat him with a broomstick and he has to leave home. Now, Flannery O'Connor probably had other reasons for writing this story. There's more to the story that I didn't share. But the point is this. Anything we crave and put value in. Anything that we try to get significance and acceptance and forgiveness from. Anything that we try to build our life around. Even when we make those things look like Jesus. Even when they become functional saviors to us. Anything other than Jesus will not give us what we think it will. We can pursue those things with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, thinking that this is what I need, but we'll just end up being disappointed and unaccepted by those things in the end. They will not free us. They will only hurt us. John knows that only Jesus can truly offer assurance and freedom and joy. John knows that our identity in Jesus severs the root of the cravings that we have for our idols. John knows that Jesus has already defeated our idols when he rose from the grave. And so he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't run to idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Run to Jesus instead. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about idols. Whether it's something that we're actually worshiping, as in an idol made of stone or wood, like may have happened here in Ephesus. Or whether it's a desire that we've given too much weight to in our lives, such that it's taken the place of Jesus. Right? Here's the thing. It's not that a piece of wood or a silver statue can do something bad to us. It's not necessarily that the thing we are pursuing is a bad thing in and of itself. Right? Money or sex or significance is not bad in and of themselves. It's that we do something awful to ourselves when we place adoration and attention that should go to God on anything other than God. When it comes to idolatry, the danger is not in the thing. The danger is in us. Because humans were designed and created to worship the true God of the universe. And when we worship idols... Be they overt idols or the lust and the desires of our flesh, we behave in ways that are less than fully human and less than fully image bearing. We are less than what we were created to be when we are worshiping anything other than Christ. We are less than human 
when we are giving significance to anything that doesn't deserve that significance. Right? People constantly seek things they can worship. That's how we were created. We were created to worship. And we need to realize and understand that one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship back to the world around you. If you worship money, you will increasingly define other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers. If you worship sex, you will increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects or obstacles in the way. If you worship power, you will increasingly treat other people as collaborators, competitors, or pawns. If you worship significance, you will increasingly treat other people as objects and pawns in your game to bolster your self-worth. Idolatry is deeply damaging because it will rob us of the assurance that can only be found in Jesus. It will cause us to live in ways that are deeply inhumane and cruel. It will cause us to live in ways that are inhuman. And so if we are to keep ourselves from idols, where are we to keep ourselves instead? And I think that answer is pretty obvious as we've moved through 1 John, right? I think the answer to that question, we know. John is writing to these believers to assure them about their standing with God because of the new identity that they have been given through Jesus. He's writing to assure them, to assure us of an eternal life, an eternal fellowship with Christ. The way that we keep ourselves in Christ, the way that we rest in Christ, is by resting in the love of the Father that's most perfectly seen in Jesus. Do you remember the assurance of pardon and grace that we read earlier? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. The way to be free from the lust of the flesh. The way to be free from the desires. The way to be free from the idols that control our lives is to embrace the love of the father. There's no need to beat ourselves up about our failures. Instead, the cure is to embrace the love that our Father has for us. The love that our Father has for you and for me. On the cross, Jesus did everything necessary to save us. And with his resurrection, Jesus did everything necessary to defeat our idols. Jesus has secured the victory. Let's rest in the victory that Jesus has secured. Jesus offers something so much better than the world offers us, than our idols can ever give us. Look at verse 20, 1 John chapter 5. It says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God. And eternal life. Because Jesus is the true God. The only true God. Worthy of our worship. Because Jesus is the true God. Because we have fellowship with God through Jesus. 
eternal life through Jesus, eternal fellowship with Jesus because of what Christ has done. We don't have to bow down to our idols. We can avoid our false gods because we know real, true, eternal life is found in Jesus. We can avoid the imitators that promise something glorious, but that will never deliver anything true. Let's remember like what C.S. Lewis said. Let's not be preoccupied with our small desires of drink and sex and ambition, as he put it. Instead, let's rest in the infinite joy and assurance that comes from the love of the Father. How much greater, how much greater is what Jesus offers us than our small desires? Let's rest in what Christ has done. Let's recognize that because of Christ, there's assurance that we could never find anywhere else. Because of what Christ has done, we can have an assurance and a joy and an eternal life that is greater than anything we could find anywhere else. Our idols will leave us trapped and disappointed and beaten and broken and hurt. But Jesus, but Jesus has secured a victory that is so much greater than anything we could ever have anywhere else. Let's rest in what Jesus has done. We're going to enter into a time of response. And this time of response, let me, that, that, is, that is the call to respond, to rest in what Christ has done. In a second, the band's going to come and lead us in some more songs and give us an opportunity to worship by singing. Um, So we have an opportunity to respond that way. You have an opportunity to respond by sitting where you are, reflecting on what the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and minds this morning. You have an opportunity to respond um, by giving. If you're a part of Redemption Church, there's a giving table in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings. And we have an opportunity to respond by taking communion. Uh, You can come down these side aisles over here, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. And so remember uh, the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Scripture tells us that every time we take communion like this, what we're doing is we're remembering what Christ has done for us and we're proclaiming that it is good and true and that we believe it. So as we take communion, we are doing it in order to remember Christ's work on our behalf. We're doing it to proclaim to one another visibly that we believe it and that it's true. If those are not two things you can do, remember and proclaim the blood and body of Christ, then I would encourage you to not come and take communion, not to be embarrassed, but I don't want you to do something um, that you can't proclaim and remember. But I'm going to pray for us. And we'll move on with that time of response. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that Jesus gives us something so incredibly wonderful. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the victory that he has secured on our behalf, for the the work he has done to make us rightly related to you. God, I pray in the rest of the time that we have together as we respond and worship that during this time, Christ would continue to be lifted high that Christ would continue to be worshipped and praised, and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus.
Amen.